Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 283, The New Roman Empire with Antony Cordelis, part 5, more questions. So, next question, uh, we're still in the narrative, uh, was the Macedonian dynasty genuinely popular with the people? And um, the listener's question here is kind of focusing on the fact that uh, so many generals uh, were brought in, the Capinos, Focas, Simiskis, who didn't get rid of the the princes, Basil and Constantine, and, and before them, Constantine, Porfirio, Yanitos. And then after Basil's the second's death, Zoe and Theodora are, are encouraged by the crowds to rule. So uh, what's going on here? Right. Well, I think any dynasty to survive needs to be popular to a certain degree. Um, and the ones whose rulers become unpopular, you know, are deposed. So there's a kind of tautology, um, just merely by surviving in this context, you have to assume a modicum of popularity. But there's a different dynamic that's going on here that I think your readers are putting their finger on, which is quite correct, because you have all these interlopers who are like admirals and generals and all this thing. And what you find in all of these cases is that the dynasty was represented by a minor or a woman or both. And I think that's the dynamic that's going on here. It's not so much that the dynasty as a kind of historical phenomenon was popular in some kind of like evaluative sense, but that the people of Constantinople were attached to the children and the women of the dynasty who, you know, they, they kind of and, and there are certain texts that say this explicitly that you know the, the the people are sort of see themselves as kind of champions of the rights of the weaker members of a dynastic family, namely the women and the children. And they don't like um, pushy men, you know, bullying their way into the palace. That's sometimes necessary because you need to have some generals or you, you know whatever. Um, but they don't like the rights of the women and children to be disrespected or shoved aside. And this is why these three um, either had to move very carefully and slowly to try to entrench their own dynasty, as Ramanasta I did. And he did, but it was very slow and methodical, and he was always respecting the rights of the existing dynasty. Like There's this whole pretense going on. 
And even that didn't work in the end. Like as soon as Constantine the Seventh had the chance, he you know put, shoved the, the Capini out, and that was that. Um, whereas the others were childless, and when they tried to entrench, well, Focas his dynasty, it did not go well, and Zimiskis didn't even try. Um, so I think that there is this kind of like standing up for the rights of the weaker members. Um, I don't think it was something about the like the idea of that dynasty. It was you know, this child, that woman, you know, like Zoe in particular, right? Um, and when the dynasty peters out, you know, Constantine VIII dies, it's just the women left, and <clears throat> they are the ones who hold the the rights of sort of legitimacy to the succession in a way, if if everyone allows them to, and it seems that there was a great deal of, of will for that to happen. And so Zoe just kind of became the rallying uh, the, the the figure around whom, you know, uh, people and others rallied for some sort of continuity. Uh, I, I think that's what it was. I, also, she seems to have been generally popular. Uh, remember, after all, the, most of the imperial women don't like do much. And so they don't get saddled with the bad reputation that any kind of policy will, will give you. So, you know, they, they can just be benign figures who... People can read whatever they want into, and I think that seems to happen here. And it, it's a period of peace and success, and so they must yeah. have, they're not associated with anything particularly negative at home. That's right. Yeah, there's there's generally rising prosperity and security in this period. Very good. Yeah. Um, do you, re oh yes, so, <laughs> sorry, I'm jumping ahead. So the next question is about Roman citizenship. So this has come up um, uh, many times, and it sort of touches on Roman identity. So uh, how did people become Roman citizens who, who were coming in from the outside um, is sort of the question. And did they find it hard to adapt to Roman identity? And I think this is I think the context for the listeners thinking, uh, not necessarily this listener, but it's come up a lot in the podcast, is that in the earlier Roman Empire, the sense you get as a as an armchair watcher of events is that groups end up aiming to become Roman. That the the elites of Gaul or um, Greece, perhaps, sort of start to want to be in the club. They want to become Roman. They want to get their hands on the citizenship eventually. By Byzantine times, citizenship isn't thought of in the same way, and then we see groups resisting that the bulgarian identity survives somehow within the empire for 150 years as an as an idea it doesn't disappear and people crave to become roman so hmm. quite a bit to talk about there yes but here we have to make a distinction between citizenship and identity yeah right so those two are are different and in some contexts they're very distinct so you can have um, in the Roman tradition, you almost always have a distinction between a legal identity as a fact of your legal status vis-a-vis -vis the authorities in the legal system of the empire on the one hand, and your identity as a Roman on the other, which may or may not be complicated by prior sort of ethnic, linguistic, cultural, geographical attachments to other places. So there are times when you find a split between what we might call like more nativist Romans of Italy or Rome um, kind of 
thinking of Romans from the provinces as kind of, you know, other or lesser or whatever, depending on the context, in the early period, even after the universal ex uh, extension of citizenship in 212. And you see the same thing in, you know, the later medieval times where you have... So, so by the way, there is a law of citizenship in, you know, Byzantine law, which is that anyone born within the territories of the Roman Empire is a Roman citizen. Like that's It's kind of like a, an American kind of um, uh, approach. So there's that, which means that all of these Bulgarians that you mentioned, they're technically Roman citizens. And um, unfortunately, like we don't know exactly how like legal disputes were resolved in Bulgaria during those hundred and you know, 60 years or whatnot. Um, we, we, but we know that the administration was increasingly um, you know, imposed by the capital with all of its own rules and laws and so on. Be that as it may, you could definitely be a Roman citizen in this period and still have a separate ethnic attachment that may make you even hostile to the whole, um, you know, imperial society at large or the whole project or whatever. And that definitely happens. Uh, so you always have to keep that split in mind. Um, when it comes to foreign groups who enter the empire, this is tricky because we actually don't have specific information about the law of persons that was applied to them. And so if you came, for example, as an auxiliary soldier to fight in a campaign because your king promised you, uh, promised 500 knights to aid the emperor on whatever, uh, no, those people weren't given citizenship just because they came and stayed for a few years and then left. Um, there's even like a question about the Varangians, like their legal status is still kind of murky um, and possibly will remain so. Now, let's say you have actual immigration um, where people leave their um, native lands and they travel to the empire and settle there like the Kuramites, right, early 9th century. Well, in that case, we have specific information that they're enlisted in the Roman armies, married to Roman women, and so forth. I think that would be impossible if they weren't treated as if they were Roman citizens. Um, uh, just on a practical level, the administration would have a great deal of difficulty in processing them. And that's the same thing as saying that they were treated as Roman citizens, even if the first generation were also regarded as kind of ethnic outsiders for a while. Um, so that's the kind of split that um, everyone needs to keep in mind when we're talking about um, law and Roman citizenship and identity in the long course of the Roman Empire. Okay, so the next question is about class. Um the actual question is, do you reject the Marxist interpretation that class is the driver of history? Or in this case, Byzantine history, I guess. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not sure that class is the driver of history in, in the Marxist interpretation. Right. <laughs> um, though, to be fair to the listener, we can rephrase that in something that more approximates a baseline Marxist interpretation, which would be um, differential access to the um, control over the means of production and and surplus production um, and so forth. And in that sense, so 
there's a there's a very general vague sense where Marxist interpretations of history are obviously true in the way that everyone, every historian, every economic historian today is a Marxist. One could even argue that the Wall Street Journal today is a Marxist publication. The Economist is a Marxist publication. It's just Marx in reverse, like it's waging class warfare, but in the opposite direction. But they're fully aware that there are this class has control over these assets and needs to maintain them or expand them at the expense of this group, normally, you know, labor or people who own resources to extract those resources and so forth. So everyone can be a Marxist in that sense. If you're just um, sort of aware of, um, you know, one's position in um, the you know, economic production and who profits from it. Having said that, um, there's also a problem of what a driver of history is. <sighs> I mean, so that's the general background sense. And I think most people would agree to that, it, but it's, it's, it's very um, diffuse and it, it, it doesn't really get us to any particular events, for example, in East Roman history, how do you, what does it explain exactly? And I don't think it actually explains much. So let me say where I would disagree with what sometimes is presented as Marxist interpretations of Byzantine history. So there's a very specific claim that I do disagree with, or at least I find that there's no evidence for it, which is that um, at some point, um, large um, powerful landowning elites gobbled up the lands of small free peasants and created a kind of quasi-feudal, we don't have to insist on that term, but at any rate, that a small number of landowning elites came to control the majority of the land and subordinated everyone else to being, to, to put it in very lay terms, kind of their serfs. I know that's not a term that's applicable, but I think this is how people are thinking about it. Um, I don't think that this ever happened in the sense that I've never been shown evidence that it did. It's, it's an assumption that's often made because some historians want to, at some point, push Byzantine history in that direction because otherwise it, it's... Um, operating at a deviant trajectory from the Marxist schema of like, you know, ancient slave owning societies, medieval feudal societies, early modern proto-industrial society, and so forth, you know, the bourgeoisie and so forth. And so you have to kind of bend it to conform to that pattern, even if this so-called feudalization occurs much later. And so the, the problem is that this claim about la large elites dominating the countryside is made for the 5th and 6th centuries. It's made for the 10th and 11th centuries. It's made for the 12th century. And then it's made again for the 13th and 14th centuries by historians who are working separately on each of those periods. None of them tell us where the free landowning elite, uh, sort of non-elite peasants got their lands from the previous time that the large elites gobbled them all up so that there are more peasant lands to be gobbled up by the aristocracy in the next phase. In other words, it seems to be a kind of 
historiographical motif that historians who are roughly aligned with this tradition of interpretation want to find in the period that they're studying, but they don't engage with each other so much to explain, okay, if this all happened in the previous century, how is it happening again now? Which is one problem. The second problem is, and where's your evidence that it happened now? Often the, the evidence is very anecdotal. Uh, you know, you have one or two cases of this happening. It's like, ah, this is a pattern. Clearly this was, you know, happening everywhere. Or you have the, the most striking cases, emperors in the 10th century who are passing laws specifically to prevent that from happening. And the argument, the conclusion that many historians drew from that is, ah, clearly this happened. But no, wait. So first of all, you're just assuming that the laws are ineffectual. Uh, and there's actually a reason to think that they were not ineffectual. But also that emperors are necessarily passing laws on the basis of some sort of mass data rather than, you know, five or six cases that came to their attention through the legal system, which seems to be what's happening. Like this, this is a kind of marginal problem. It's a problem around the edges that they're fixing. And thirdly, the main culprit in these cases is the church. Not, quote, Anatolian magnates about whose property we have virtually zero data. Yeah, yeah, they were wealthy, sure. But like, did they own half of Asia Minor? We don't know. Did they own a tenth of it? We don't know. We have no data. Um, so the church is definitely acceptable as a sort of feudalizing institution gobbling up land, but it's not the one that these historians really want. They really want a landed aristocracy. And so they they look at generals for this purpose, which is a wholly unsuited, unsuitable class for that role. Anyway, I'll stop there. In other words, there are broad ways of interpreting this that one can be okay with, and there are very specific ones that I find um, unsubstantiated in the evidence that we have. Yeah. So I, I, I'm both, I both want to get very tangential and I'm also slightly wary of it. What I want to say, because I come at these things with, with a great deal of ignorance because I'm not a historian, nor have I studied history in, in great detail at university level. But I get a sense from a lot of listeners that because Western European history from, say, 1000 to the year 2000 is a relentless churn of sort of new ideas, new technology, new religious conflicts that constantly drive history, as it were, that there is an assumption, therefore, that everywhere on the globe, the same thing is true going back to the beginning of history, that everywhere history is being driven by change and progress and this idea and I get the sense, having now studied Byzantium in depth, that that, is a, that isn't really true in Byzantium. That a lot of Byzantine history, everyone is pretty content with the way things are, that there isn't an urge to overthrow the, the injustices of life, that there is a sort of acceptance that things are the way they are. And, and I, you know, so that idea is classed the driver of history. I mean, it, that just that phrase, the driver of history, slightly alerts me to perhaps an idea of how history functions that isn't actually applicable in all parts of the globe at all times. Right. The that there is a 
a kind of progressive momentum built into the idea of driver and progressive. I don't mean like in a, in a good sense. I just mean as a kind of, uh, ch you know, rapid change creating. Yeah. Yes. I think you're right. I think that's right. And also Western Europe and the East Roman state are not symmetrical or commensurate entities. The one is a single state in society. It's in a broader international context, which you can look at as a kind of cluster or system. But the other one is a kind of, I mean, Western Europe is a somewhat um, coherent civilizational block of people who did see themselves as belonging to a kind of grouping, whether they called it the West, which they did, or, you know, Christendom or or the Christian race publica, or sometimes even um, uh, the, the Latin world. They did use those terms, which are not specific to a particular state and society. So there's considerable competition among them, and they're very different kinds of things, uh, right? So that the kingdoms of France and England are very, very different from the German emperors, from the Italian city-states, from the papacy. And so in this kind of block, you have all of these very competing um, ideas for, um, you know, what to do, how to do it, where we're going, who's in charge. Um, and this produces a great deal of competition and conflict that is driving that kind of churn that you mentioned. But the East Roman context is a single society. It's not, it's not the same thing. And it's one that, if I can say, had, had kind of settled on a, an equilibrium and a solution that worked. You know, there's a reason why they were reluctant or uninterested in changing the fundamentals is not because of a kind of passive fatalism. And I'm not saying you said that, but um, that what they had just kind of worked better um, and was large enough um, that it could operate as its own kind of world. Um, and uh, yeah, I think these are very different dynamics. Mm. Very good. Uh, so, uh, this is another perennial question that comes my way. Um, this listener says, my impression is that pre-imperial Rome was able to raise larger armies than many medieval states, including Byzantium. Is that accurate? And if so, why? Well, I mean, you and I discussed this over email and and you, you, you expressed this idea that um, your sense that this question kept coming back. But the answer for it that you gave me an email is correct. Um, and so I will just repeat that. Well, I was about to write to you with basically the same kind of explanation, but you, you, you beat me to it. So we're thinking along the same lines, and it is roughly as follows. The impression is roughly correct, but the way in which ancient Rome raised its soldiers was very, very different from that of the Roman Empire, really post-Augustus. And that is that in the Roman Republic, the soldiers were called up for, in theory, limited campaigns. And the soldiers were basically the citizenry. Now, at that time, it seems that Italy had a larger population than it did later. And so it could call so the the the, the Senate could call up soldiers um, to serve for a limited amount of time, which meant it didn't pay them. It was part of their civic duty. I mean, they may, you know, make some you know, some plunder or whatever on the way. There, there might have been some support for them, 
But if you don't have to pay them and it's for a limited time, um, then you can just raise more people. Now, that was problematic because the campaigns tended to get longer and longer. And you can't take people away from working the land for too long. And the long-term process, in, in the long-term, this process meant that those positions, the, the agricultural vacancies were filled by slaves. Hundreds of thousands of which were imported into Italy on a mass scale from the conquests. And so the more you start to have professional armies in the period of the Republic, that's full time, like serving for years, the more the, Itar the Italian heartland gets worked by unfree labor, it seems, right? To the point where many of those soldiers lose their ties with that land. This is a social process that's been described quite a bit by um, ancient Roman historians. And eventually just become full-time soldiers who are dependent on their generals for support, which fuels the civil, the civil war cycle, right? Which was disastrous. And one thing that Augustus had to do was break that cycle. And you break that cycle by essentially formalizing the professionalization of soldiers, sort of making them essentially salaried and settling them somewhere outside of Italy, preferably, right? But this also means that you can't have that many of them because now you're paying for them full time, right? So it's literally the difference between, you know, outsourcing a task into the gig economy and hiring someone full time with benefits, right? The Roman Empire is basically doing the latter you know, for the next thousand years. Like, that's how it works. The, the core of the army, not all of it. You always were hiring people uh, to supplement it, right? And that's just much, much more expensive. Um, and it means that you can't draw up that many people. Now, one caveat here. So it's possible that in certain periods, Constantinople was able to raise larger armies than it would have otherwise because it was treating them as part-time. And I'm referring to the periods in like the later 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. So the thematic uh, armies, right? The core of the, not the, not the core core, but the bulk, the majority of soldiers in the thematic army are essentially part-time soldiers. And so the state gives them part-time support. The other support, the other part comes from you know, their, their land and certain fiscal arrangements that were made for their support locally and so forth. So that's a kind of middle uh, middle point between full-time professional and uh, part-time called up on a per campaign basis, which means that in that, let's say, you know, early ninth century, the state can have something like maybe 80 to 100,000 soldiers in the books which if you think about it is astonishing for an empire that has lost like three-fifths of its territory, if not more compared to late antiquity, when its armies weren't like that much bigger. I mean, Justinian was basically running his wars with, you know, maybe 100 to 150,000 soldiers plus border um, units that were probably not drawn up for those kind of, you know, Belisarius level campaigns. And so... You're thinking, wait, how is a much, much smaller state, you know, have, you know, a roughly equivalent or somewhat smaller army than Justinian? Well, it's because they weren't all full-time professionals. So that's, um, 
th those differences in organization, administration, and finance explain also um, the the size of the armies that you're seeing. Yeah. So, I, and just to sort of give some examples from things I've heard from listeners over the year, I mean, I think the thing that stands out to them are the the three battles Hannibal wins um, at Lake Trasimene and Cannae, and so on, and the Romans are able to raise another army. And so, I think listeners ask understandably after a Adrianople or a Manzikert, why can't this now much bigger Roman state just raise another army like the Romans did straight after losing what sound like you know tens of thousands of people against Hannibal and and what I've always said to the listeners is is that is that to conscript infantry to sort of shadow Hannibal around and not necessarily fight him is very different from creating a professional army that can stand up to the goths on the loose or mm. step nomads flooding over anatolia and conscripting people to fight for you I and mean, how are they going to gain the experience to be effective soldiers they're going to have to fight so you're sending men out to lose again most likely which is a, is a waste of time but it's also politically dangerous that's the thing i always think people forget is you can raise an army and send them out but if they lose your position is now very vulnerable if you're an emperor or you're a new regime or whatever you are. It doesn't actually benefit you to lose. It, it, you are often better yep. just waiting for time to to wither your opponent's strength. Yes. And I will say I will add something paradoxical to that, which supports what you just said. The Roman imperial armies were generally better than the Roman Republican ones. Now, the audience might like, they're, you know, bristle and say, what? No, the ancient Romans conquered whatever, whatever. Okay. But okay, think about it. Think about all of the battles that they lost to Hannibal. Just massive losses again and again and again, right? Whereas even in the later Roman period, like at Adrianople, Adrianople is a shock because the Roman armies just normally don't lose like that. That's like extraordinary. And that's what creates, you know, that's what makes it such a sort of epochal event, um, you know, for the Romans then and for history writing since, because they normally just don't lose on that scale because, in part, they're better. Um, so when you're in the, like, say, right after Adrianople, you're not looking at this in the following way: Oh, how many men do we have? Yeah, call up those men. You're looking at it like, how much money do I have to afford good soldiers? right? Um, which is a very different dynamic. Like in Hannibal's time, it was like, well, how many men do we have? Yeah, throw them into the grinder. Um, and what the Second Punic War is basically a long process by which the Romans eventually build up a trained, experienced army that can finally beat Hannibal. And But that takes them so long, right? Um, it's a, just a completely different context. But anyway, I hope this does give a sense of the the very different context and framework that we're talking about. You're just not going to send a bunch of new recruits out to fight the Goths. Absolutely. And I, I mean, and that gets to kind of your point in a way is, is this farmer in Syria more useful to me earning money on his farm and paying taxes exactly. than he is if I drag him off his land to teach him how to fight with a sword and then discover he's actually not not very good you know. exactly <laughs> and, and there's also a difference in the legitimacy of the regime 
in a Republican state, you know, the, the senator, the political authorities can call up citizens because it's their duty to fight, you know, for the Republic when they're called up. But in the empire, it's a very different calculation. It's a fine balance that you have to strike between what you expect of your subjects and their ability to rebel against you and replace you with someone else. So you can't squeeze your subjects too much. You know, Theodosius tried that. In fact, he did impose a special tax for military recruitment uh, on the city of Antioch, and it rebelled and tore down his statues. And there was a whole scandal and a massive thing. Now, you might think, well, oh, he could send the troops in to kill people. But that doesn't, it doesn't work. That makes the problem worse. And you see in the aftermath of that riot, all of these delicate political negotiations to try to get the city to stand down, but the emperor to maybe get something that he wants. And there's a lot of threatening, but no one does anything. So it's a very different situation. Emperors have to be very careful who they offend. They can't squeeze people for too much money in taxes. They can't squeeze their subjects for too many recruits because there are political limits to what they can do. Uh, this is the whole point. This is this is why I called it the Byzantine Republic kind of paradoxically, because there are these limits to what emperors can ask. And if they go too far, it, you know, it's on their head. Yeah, absolutely. I, I covered that, the, the standoff in, in episodes on John Chrysostom. When people yeah. are waiting around going, is he going to send troops in to kill yeah. us all? And, you know, there's yeah. real anxiety. Um, okay, so we're we're now into uh, another section of questions which are counterfactuals, which people are always uh, intrigued by. So let's start with uh, the 717 siege of Constantinople by the, the um, Arab Caliphate. Uh, what do you think the uh, Muslama, I think it was, but you know, what would the caliphate have done with Constantinople if they had taken it? Um, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just leave it blank. Uh, well, we have to assume that existing patterns of behavior would stay in place. Right. And, and by the way, generally with counterfactual questions, um, I'll expand on this a little bit later, but generally we we have to assume that counterfactual questions are getting at a single circumstance that might have gone the other way, a battle or, you know, some accident that can happen at any time in history, and assume that the fundamental structures of like social and economic life and identity and everything, that those are still operating in the same way in the background, right? So you can't say, well, if the Arabs took Constantinople in 717, and had 20 more armies to settle in. <laughs> no. Uh, so clearly they would not have attacked it if they didn't have a plan for what they were going to do if they won. Uh, but that would probably have been exactly what they had been doing all along, which was settle military garrisons um, in it or in the vicinity um, and just try to control the population um, in the agricultural provinces that way. So that's probably what they would have done. Uh, same thing they did everywhere else. Now, the problem is that at precisely this time, the caliphate's expansion is grinding down, is grinding to a halt. All in all, it lasted about a century. And, you know, they had a good run. 
But they were encountering problems on just about every front here. They were moving into Spain at the same time, but would be checked, um, you know, past the Pyrenees and would fall back well, well, you know, beyond, behind the Pyrenees. Um, they were being checked in Central Asia. And the reason this was happening is that they just simply didn't have, well, many reasons, but one is that they just didn't simply have the armies to um, both conquer and then garrison all of these places. So we are assuming that they would have been stretched very, very thin, which means that the possibilities for a Roman recovery would have been, um, you know, good, 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 good odds. And in fact, it had already begun during the siege itself, this guy in Sicily, who, um, uh, this governor Sergius, who, who, who I think, Mistake was misinformed that the city has fallen and immediately began the process of setting up a government in quote exile or whatever and to re restart the process of recovery uh, the way that the East Romans always did every time that happened. It happened in 1204 and we know what they did. So the question is, would they have been able to, would the Arabs have been able to keep it given that they were stretched so thin across Asia Minor? Asia Minor was a very, very difficult place for them. Um, they, when they had this uh, winter there, it was really tough on them. Uh, John Halden talks about all this very well in his um, The Empire That Wouldn't Die. Um, it, they just faced real challenges in putting down roots there, which is why their raids never really did. Um, so the question then is, you know, would there have been some local resistance enough to make their position untenable? Uh, so I think those are the main parameters within which that counterfactual history would have played out. But expanding beyond that, uh, that would have been rough. I should just ask you to clarify, because a listener did ask about that. The You're saying the plateau, the conditions in Anatolia are not ones that the Arabs were uh <laughs> keen to to make their home it didn't suit yeah. their lifestyle and their way of operating yes and they also didn't have a their tendency thus far was not to settle and mingle in the populations they conquered but to establish sort of militarized facilities that they stayed in to, to the side um that would have been really tough for them in anatolia so I just to uh, add, so the, the the listener did ask, would they have destroyed Constantinople? Would they have expanded further from it? Or would they have moved the capital of the caliphate there? And it sounds like you're saying no to all three of those in, in this, in our limited counterfactual view. Oh, no, I think they would have tried to take over Constantinople in some way. Um, and no, because you, you simply can't hold any of these territories without it. It's it's a bunker that really holds down the Bosporus, the crossing from Asia to Europe. It, it, no, they would have absolutely needed to hold it. But they wouldn't have, they would have sacked it, but they wouldn't have destroyed it. They They would have occupied it and kept it. They wouldn't have necessarily been able to expand there, we've sort of said. I think they wouldn't have moved the capital there because it's the furthest extreme of the... Oh, no, 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 no. And, no. no. and it's so no. far from Mecca and Medina. It's so far from Iraq, which ends up being the sort of center of their world. So, it, yeah, none of those things. Yeah. No, no, that that wouldn't have made any sense. If anything, as, as a... 
as a strategic objective, it was for them much more sort of defensive, in other words, to, to get that problem out of the way rather than to use it as a springboard for further expansion. Had they tried that, I think they would have found the Bulgars to be just way too much trouble. <laughs> um, no, I. in other words, they would probably have been content with having neutralized it. And then all the compounding problems that hit the caliphate in the 30s and 40s, which actually even led to one caliph thinking about just pulling back. Um, his advisors told him not to, but anyway. Um, there's a great book on this, Blankenship, The End of the Jihad State, uh, which talks about this dynamic very well. Well, and and final comment from me, uh, my sense as well with the way the history of the caliphate played out is had they held it for a hundred years and so on, it Constantinople would have been ripe for becoming like Spain, as in a separate state. It would have been so easy for a governor there to declare independence and say, we're yeah. not taking orders anymore and just take up the same position Byzantium was in, as in using the Taurus Mountains as a, as a border for their own private realm. That is a very good point. That's a very likely possibility had they been able to keep it that long. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So <laughs> the next few uh, move us into the uh, more recent uh, narrative of the podcast um, and, and and leading up to the, the Fourth Crusade, really. So uh, the relationship with the papacy, um, several listeners sort of zeroed in on this asking how much do you blame the papacy for you know, what happened the, in 1204? Was there a path out of that antagonistic relationship? If Constantinople had clung on to Southern Italy, if the Normans hadn't you know, taken it completely, would that have changed the relationship with the papacy? So it's a whole area of, of, of questions people are sort of interested in. Uh, about could could things have played out differently between the the reformed papacy and its view of itself as supreme and and Byzantium? Oh, so are we assuming a reformed papacy because um Constantinople's uh, hold in southern Italy and and kind of expansion in southern Italy in certain centuries was before the papacy became the reformed papacy. So my answer would be that had, Constantinople been able to hold on to southern Italy and possibly even expand there to the point where and they they almost reached this point in like the 380s oh, sorry 980s um they were they they managed to like appoint their own pope there um Boniface to something or other anyway and briefly um but also were major players in that area such that they could sort of influence elections and do things like that. So the counterfactual would be, had that trajectory um, increased, uh, so had if Constantinople had more of a say in what happened in Rome, um, yeah, I think that the relationship might have evolved in a less antagonistic way. Um, and, you know, who knows what impact this might have had on on the reform movement in the 11th century, which was the century after this. Um, so, yeah, that could have changed the relationship because Rome and Constantinople were not always antagonistic. There are periods of intense antagonism, uh, which are very destructive, um, and periods of either indifference or collaboration. And so had 
the structures changed a little bit more so that collaboration or indifference became the norm rather than um, confrontation and antagonism, then yeah, that would have made a big difference. The problem is that when Rome is antagonistic, it could do a lot of damage, and it did do a lot of damage. Uh, so uh, this isn't a matter of blame. These are all, you know, historical agents and, you know, this is history. We're not you know, blaming people. for, um, You know, they're all acting in their own interest or what they take to be their own interest. Um, so the papacy was definitely responsible for disseminating a great deal of anti-Greek, you know, in quotation marks, prejudice and propaganda, um, increasingly so in the 12th century. Um, but it had a track record of doing so in the past. So at various times when it thought that, you know, for whatever reasons, it's, it's a complicated story, it did push this narrative um, that, quote, the Greeks used to be, quote, obedient to St. Peter, like this, this absolutist conception of papal monarchy where, like, the entire Christian church is subject to St. Peter in a monarchical uh, sense. Um, and that the Greeks had then, because of their faithlessness and treachery, had broken away from a rule um, by um, the Church of Rome and had to, quote, be brought back uh, into it. And the technical term uh, for in Latin is the reduction, reductio, of the Greeks. This is, this is how the problem was phrased, literally, um, in, in Rome. How do we reduce the Greeks? And, well, they sent many, many armies to reduce the Greeks um, when it was convenient or, you know, when someone came along who was like the Normans who was you know, promising to go conquer Constantinople and wanted a papal alliance and legitimation. And Pope said, OK, but you will subordinate the church to me. And this is the way that uh, the, Cap uh, the Catholic Church expanded its control over Spain and Sicily and other places by having armies fight in its name. Um, and that led right up to the Fourth Crusade, which by that point, see, the the cat was out of the bag. I mean, Innocent didn't want the crusade to go there, but there was such an en enormous and convenient ideological apparatus for the crusaders to use about all of this, bringing the Greeks back into obedience to the Church of Rome, um, that the crusading leaders used it regardless of whether Innocent III wanted it or not. Um, the Church of Rome was not the only center for the dissemination of such propaganda. The Normans played their own part and others too. Um, at times the French, at times the Germans and so forth. The, the overall tendency was to create a negative image. Um, but it, from the standpoint of Constantinople, it was definitely very destructive. Yes. Mm. It's, it's, and is there a path yeah. out of this antagonistic <laughs> relationship? No. No, yeah. there's not, because there still isn't. Right. Right. If all of these brilliant minds and leaders of churches and states have not been able to figure one out in 1400 years or whatever, I'm not going to say that there's an easy path out of this. No, it's interesting because I, I sort of think the question is, uh, in a counterfactual sense, if Basil II or uh, Maniarchies after him had taken Sicily, would the reform papacy have never come about? Because without the Normans conquering for them and then agreeing, you know, having done the dirty work to be obedient, would they have 
had the sense That's that all. they yeah would they have this sense okay we can just keep doing that we can keep using the military of western europe to conquer somewhere and then say that's now back in our hands well the normans are latecomers to the project of papal reform um which doesn't it starts completely independently of the normans it's a it, it it's something that has much more to do with germany um and the sort of the takeover of rome by german prelates and the Norman alliance comes along much later after years of antagonism between the papacy and the Normans, and even then it's on and off. Um, but the prospect of a East Roman domination of Rome, um, by the way, there's this fascinating passage in, in Lutprand, and Lutprand is in Constantinople, and he's speaking with uh, Basel, the Parakimomenos, the, the eunuch chamberlain who's running Constantinople at that time. And um, this is in the in 968. And at some point, Basel is sort of, you can imagine this sort of eunuch very calmly telling Lutprand that, yes, we have our plans for Rome. <laughs> and, it's, and within a generation, they were like installing like rival popes and whatever, like as they were, their power was creeping up there. Um, and yeah, if that trajectory had gone differently, if there were no Normans in, in Italy, that's a whole different scenario. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the ultimate ground for disagreement is that, is, is the idea of who runs the church. And, you know, in, in the in the Catholic church, the Catholic the church of Rome insists that it has the final word on all, major issues and the eastern churches don't agree with that and they believe that ecumenical councils resolve the issue but that's the issue they can't solve if they could solve that issue the other issues would sort of fall like dominoes in a way mm. well uh moving on to the fourth crusade itself um the two the two sort of sides of, of a counterfactual would be uh obviously um the empire's in in a in a great crisis even before they arrive uh mm -hmm. so had they had the fourth crusade not come had they gone to egypt as they were supposed to would byzantium re have recovered to you know uh Komnenian levels of of security and uh, had the crusaders still sacked the city but then left for egypt <laughs> could could the Romans have recovered from that position again to a to a reasonable level of stability? My answer to both of these would be probably yes, um, because as I said, we're assuming that the this underlying structures remain the same, but that only contingent events um, change. The East Roman state had displayed a remarkable tendency um, to recover, uh, an ability to get its act together, um, you know, promote economic growth. Um, and so I would bet on that. Not necessarily to return to like Komnenian levels, like manual Komnenos levels, um, because I think Bulgaria would have been a, a very difficult uh, not to crack, but I don't see why it would have to. Um, in other words, it would, yes, I would bet on there being a recovery and that um, it, uh, 
would be, however, a, a more limited kind of more Roman state rather than having this big um, sort of imperial acquisition that was Bulgaria. Um, you know, and the, the um, Mongols aren't too far away in time. Mongols come along and they, you know, if that pattern repeated itself also where the Mongols just destroy everyone around the Romans and leave them intact, that would have offered a great deal of opportunities had the Romans not been, you know, trying desperately to get their state back together as, as happened in real history. And had they had that opportunity, they might have used that to very good advantage. Um, so, yeah, th that's the missed opportunity in a way that because they were trying to put the pieces back together, they couldn't really take that much advantage of the mess that the Mongols made in all of their around all of their neighbors. And if the city is sacked, it's the recovery is harder, but it's still possible. Oh yeah, cities recover. Okay. Yeah, that's not a. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's that sense that uh, when when the things get really tough, Heraclius or Alexius Komnenos can go and melt down all the gold uh, in the church's capitals or wherever and find a way out, or they can ransack the tombs of the emperors. There's a way out because of the wealth that's in the city. But once mm. that wealth has gone, your bounce back ability is, is, uh, is weakened. This is true. Um, but I think that's, that's the crisis. I think they can recover from it. Uh, it might take longer if they have less uh, available cash. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think they can recover. Okay. Um, this is a fun one. Do you have a favorite character from the whole of uh, New Roman history that you would have wanted to become emperor? And and the listener clarifies, not necessarily because you think they would have done a good job, just because you think it would have been entertaining. <laughs> you mean we can just entertain the possibility of like a, just a Trump character just burning it all down and well, just yeah. watch it. we can just watch the spectacle? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I like this culture uh, too much to take pleasure in that kind of scenario. Um, but there is someone uh, who I who who I think would have made a very good emperor um, and who might have turned things around, in fact, specifically in connection with the events that we were just talking about. And this is Andronikos Komnenos Kondostefanos. Ring a bell? Uh, Manuel's troubleshooting general yep. slash so, admiral. Yes. Is so right? this yeah. is, yeah, this is one of Manuel's top guys um, who by the time, you know, when Andronicus the first comes to power is like a kind of senior statesman kind of figure. And he seems to have been very capable, um, level-headed, um, politically flexible, and had a large family, apparently very many children, uh, but, you know, ran afoul Andronicus the first. But everything that I see about the guy is, it tells me that he would have been the ideal person to clean up the mess um, uh, post Emmanuel. So, uh, yeah, I would have I bet on him. Yeah, he he was trusted, wasn't he, to to lead campaign to Egypt? And was he the 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 rear guard at Myriokephalon, something like you know he's in, i forget exactly but he's in these trusted positions all the time yeah i don't you know i can't remember now what he was doing at Myriokephalon, but 
Yeah, he yeah. also led these campaigns against the Hungarians, like very mm. successful. Uh, yeah, moving way outside of Roman territory. Um, just, just really, really competent guy. Yeah, brilliant. Um, we move on now to uh, a section I've I've labeled as Byzantine studies because lots of people um, asked sort of questions about the study of New Roman history, and um, yeah. so. Uh, yeah there's some really interesting ones here so uh this was quite a specific one from someone clearly um who, who is sort of uh has studied things themselves they said could you describe how the process of orientalizing the byzantines took place in western academia yeah this isn't a specific this isn't a specific question by the way i'm writing a separate book on this um, right. How I think, I think they picked up on something you said in Byzantium Unbound, which has led to this question. Yes, I think. Um, though Byzantium Unbound was before I conceived this project um, of a book that it tries to explain how the idea of Byzantium was created in the Western imagination from late antiquity down to World War II. So in a sense, I can refer listeners to that future book, uh, which will be called something like Byzantium, Europe's Dark Mirror. But I can give a to one or two sentence um, explanation uh, answer to this, um, which is that this didn't happen in Western academia. It happened in the Western Middle Ages long before. All of the elements of orientalization are there, including the effeminate men, despotic government, uh, you know, exoticism, sexual allure, sexual deviance, um, the idea that, that you know, those Greeks require sort of solid manly Western rule in order to get their act together. Th that those are all the sort of components of Orientalization, and, and they're there already. Western academia merely receives that package of um, stereotypes and prejudices and turns them into an academic discipline. Uh, with very little change or, or push, pushback. The pushback didn't happen really until the later 20th century, and we're still trying to do it. Um, so it's a long history, and I would describe its main mechanism as follows. Um, all of the things that Western Europeans want to create their own ongoing sort of self-fashioning as Western Europeans at any period, a lot of those come from the East, uh, namely, all the, a lot of fundamental things in, in uh, Christian culture, the idea of Roman emperorhood, which they don't get from classical antiquity, they get from Constantinople. If you, you know, if you're like in the 10th century and you want to look like a Roman emperor, you don't go do antiquarian research in Tacitus. You, you just look, you do what Constantinople does. Um, and later on, um, Greek studies. So in the Renaissance and afterwards, when um, Hellenic philology is transferred from east to west. So every time one of those movements happens, the west starts describing itself as the rightful heir of those traditions, uh, as the good version of them, and then um, casts the east or Constantinople or the Greeks as the bad version of those things, right? So, you know, when you're looking at the Roman tradition, either they're not Roman at all, or they're despotic, or it's like the decline and fall phase of Roman history or whatever. If you're looking at the Christian tradition, like Western Europeans are the right kind of Christian, whereas the Easterners are kind of schismatic or heretical or deviant or uh, disobedient or these kinds of things. Or in the Enlightenment, 
they're like superstitious and theocratic and ruled by monks and all of that. Um, if you're looking at the Greek tradition, Western scholars are the ones who have who understand the true spirit of the classical texts, whereas those Easterners, they kept them. Yes, you know, good check mark for you, but um, you're the you never understood their true spirit. You just held them. That's the cold storage model. Your own spoken Greek is kind of degenerate and wrong. Um, and uh, your your vulgar, barbarous Greeks, as opposed to the classical Greeks that we understand. Hence, we're going to come up with a wholly different way of pronouncing that language, so that the, so that the difference between the two is absolutely apparent, and you you can't even speak to us, and we can't speak to you. And and that's how um, Byzantium was constructed, an image inherited by the academic field and perpetuated into the 20th century. In fact, the peak of this fantasy is the is is the early 20th century. Um, I think we've slowly been coming down from that peak since World War II, very slowly. We look forward to that book uh, for more on that. Um, this next question is an interesting one. Are there any texts or archaeological discoveries that stand out to you as being especially pivotal for our understanding of Byzantine history? Well, I will mention some archaeological discoveries, they're not actually discoveries, um, that relate to my understanding of Byzantine history and how it was changed. And I need to say that these are not discoveries in the way of like uh, Indiana Jones or, you know, like, ah, we found the codex, the, the Da Vinci Code or whatever. Um, this is not how archaeology really works anymore. Obviously, you can excavate a site and find some very interesting things that change, you know, your picture. Uh, but usually marginally. I mean, it's like, oh, there's a there's a bit more of this than we thought there was or there, something like that. So individual archaeological excavations, in my mind, don't really shift um, the change the picture very much. And often the individual ones are very contested as to what they mean. This is this is really frustrating for me. Like every time there's a I read these excavation reports and then there's attempts to understand it. It's like, oh, it could be this, or it could be that, or it could be something else. And it's like, well, we don't know. Like, okay. Okay. So that's not what made a, a big difference for me. What made a big difference for me um, was aggregate data, uh, especially from archaeological surveys um, that others have you know, aggregated and studied and put together. And, and you can contest you know, what any individual finding or survey means, but the aggregate picture is pretty clear. And for me, um, the interesting part of that picture is the following, that every time the Constantinople's institutions have stable and safe um, control over their provinces, those provinces tend to prosper economically, expand, demographically and more lands are brought into cultivation and so forth. And then there's a crisis, there's invasions, there's raids that get set back. Once the government eventually, you know, stabilizes the situation, gets control over it again, you see the same thing again. There's growth, there's um, agricultural expansion, there's demographic expansion and so forth. And this happens in repeated cycles. Um, so for me, that pattern is very, very striking. Because for one thing, it tells me that the modes of governance of the state are not incompatible with economic prosperity and demographic growth. 
which it used to believe the opposite, right? That this is an oppressive, you know, extractive regime that is grinding its subjects into poverty and so forth for the benefit of, quote, elites or whatever. I don't think that picture can possibly hold up. Um, the economic retrenchment and damage is caused by foreign wars and invasions and raids. Um, and every time those are pushed back successfully, you start to see economic growth. Um, and this is the result. You, you see this through archaeological data that, you know, many others have aggregated, have, have actually carried out and aggregated. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this maybe as a kind of like stratospherically kind of super aggregator, <laughs> just drawing an even bigger um, a a pattern from uh, that kind of data. So that for me has been very, very important. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, not to pick on the phrasing of the question, but obviously we do, thanks to Indiana Jones or whatever, we do tend to think of things as uh, or what happened that suddenly changed everything. And the, the only one I can think of, and it doesn't really change everything, but is Procopius's secret history, where you can point to a text being discovered that people didn't have access to before. From my perspective, the changes seem to be the last 50 years scholars doing what you were just talking about, like going in, rereading texts and going, actually, what was said 100 years ago isn't true. It's not borne out yeah. by this text at all. And just peeling back assumptions and layers of of, of mis misguided thinking is, is what's really changed yes. things. Yeah. Um, there are a number of texts that were dis not discovered. I mean, they're not discovered. They're always there. They're just kind of published and edited um, that change things sometimes. For example, even the history of Selos, that wasn't published until the late 19th century. The Gibbon didn't know it. Hmm. And had Gibbon known this text, I think he might have found the 11th century a heck of a lot more interesting than he did. Hmm. Right? Um, so, yeah, it's unlikely that we're going to get texts of that caliber, you know, coming online at this late stage. I think we've probably found all the ones that, that exist. But yeah, some texts have had a great impact. Um, but also, just disassociating political from economic history to a certain degree. So even in the late 20th century, it was still very common to assume that, well, if they're losing wars and battles, their economy is also in decline. Which now we know that's not the case. Um, and you, you kind of separate those two things and you can have, you know, uh, different patterns in economic history than you do in, in political or imperial history or narrative and so forth. Uh, so that's very important. Yeah. Uh, so several listeners asked about uh, Byzantium in popular culture or popular media, videos, games, films, TV shows. Um, has the lack of popular media covering Byzantium been a detriment or a positive to the study of Nero. Well, the, in a sense, the real question here is, is it true that uh, any attention uh, is better than no attention? And I can't make up my mind about that. Mm. In, so and my understanding is that Byzantium is quite present in video games, yeah. in a lot of them. I think that's the one 
where they are often present because of the format of the games where they want lots of different options. Yeah, and that the coverage there is not as bad as you might imagine. Um, In fact, in some senses, you know, gamers um, are often ahead of professional Byzantinists in getting certain things right or in asking certain questions about how it worked on the ground because they need to answer that for the mechanics. Um, and, uh, you know, I get emails from from people who either are gamers or who convey to me the kinds of discussions that are being had there. And they're not um, insignificant or trivial, uh, which I find interesting. Uh, now, for the rest, I don't think we're going to get... It's very difficult to get a film or a TV series about Byzantium for... I was actually having a conversation um, with a number of producers. So I get contacted by, this is, so I am in regular touch with about half a dozen script writers or screenplay writers who are writing either a mini series or a movie. And they want to just sort of consult with me and that's fine. You know, you know, they want to, the questions from, they just really range the gamut from broad interpretive questions to how did locks and keys work and things like this. Um, and some producers, uh, two producers in, in, uh, you know, sort of Hollywood adjacent, uh, who are thinking about how to do this. Um, I, I'm, I don't know that anything will come of all of this, um, in, in part because historical dramas are very expensive, um, and there needs to be, a, a um, an existing known audience of fans for that sort of thing that will, uh, justify the expense. So for Rome, there is such a thing, right? For Crusades, there is such a thing. But those are like the two really big, right? What's the audience for an East Roman drama or historical epic or whatever, right? Like most people don't even, they don't even know the coordinates. Like, wait, where, who, what? Um, and so my fear is that the tendency to make it legible would be to just hard orientalize it right in other words more theodora industry and i'm tired of the theodora industry i mean i really am the theodora industry is like a a dna tracer of orientalism right just how many books are published on theodora how many novels are that same story how many images and you know paintings and whatever are that's the idea of byzantium so as far as that as long as that continues we're not out of the we're not out of the woods uh but i don't know i on the other hand i do get students who take classes and i, I just kind of ask them well, why did you take this course and oh assassin's creed i was just curious so yeah if if that works fine with me yeah fair enough i i yeah, I do. I feel um, the 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 fact that it's not it it wouldn't fit into yeah pre existing Hollywood stereotypes that you do, do you have to yeah. play down the Christianity because that's not fashionable now do you have to do you have to make the court a viper's nest because that's what people expect even though it's it's you know there's just so many things there. Yeah, that require nuance and yeah that's not what people go in for um would you like to see would you be happy if three uh you know big tv series and a big film even if they were awful and historically 
inaccurate, would you still like that because it would bring attention to the field or would it annoy you that they were so inaccurate if they were? Oh, it would certainly annoy me. But the question is, would those maybe lay the groundwork or create a proto audience that might be interested in seeing something better? So I think it would largely depend on whether... So setting aside the the orientalizing traits that I that worry me, whether the story is a good story, right? In other words, I will concede that you can tell a good story even if you wrap it up in the Theodora industry. Like do it well, good plot, good characters, good acting, right? Even if it's otherwise cringy on all... <laughs> on all the grounds that we talked about. If it's a good story, I think it will leave the impression that there are good stories to be told there. So my main concern would be that it be well done, even if I would object to a whole host of things in it. If it's well done and successful, I think it will create a demand for more. So that that would be my top thing. Write a good story, please. Yeah. Uh yeah, absolutely. Um, now, this next question uh, is one of those that could could generate a very long answer, but uh, see what you want to do with it. Um, what would you view as the major continuities and discontinuities between the culture of Byzantium and modern Greek culture? Um, it gets complicated after that. So, <laughs> yeah, and you... in fact, I thought about this so much because we could talk for hours and hours about this and. Mm. I don't really want to do that. So instead of doing a continuities, discontinuities, I will talk kind of tangentially um, about this and suggest something that uh, the audience has perhaps not uh, you know, heard or considered. Um, so instead of doing a kind of checklist of, yes, this is it, or no, that's it, um, I will say the following. Uh, so obviously, many uh, many countries in Europe had empires and developed their own sort of high imperial culture, and many were part of empires, and so were had to kind of liberate themselves in a way from uh, domination or colonization by other empires. Um, you know, Ireland and England, you know, in Western Europe, or Greece and the Ottoman Empire in the East, and so forth. The ones, the cultures that were conquered, dominated, and so forth, lost their aristocracies, lost their high culture, right? Whereas the ones that had empires managed to um, turn their own local cultures into imperial prestige cultures, right? This is how fringe culture became what it is, right? This is also certain parts of you know the British royal and aristocratic culture, you know this is why when we make movies about empires, they, all the actors have to have British accents, you know, because that indicates sort of sophistication and power, right, and and so forth. Um, and this is what's lost when you're conquered. So, not assuming any kind of continuity as such between Romans and modern Greeks, but just taking the whole. Um, areas of Orthodox Southeastern Europe as a whole, 
the fact that all of those countries lost their native aristocracies and you know elite culture meant that when they emerged they're largely vernacular cultures right so think greek cuisine versus french cuisine greek food is just infinitely better <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's vernacular right it's like it's not high cuisine it's like gyro and you know whatever um so the we like you don't have restaurants that are like sophisticated fine greek food it's all fine and very good but it's a anyway you, you see what i'm saying mm. um and like the there isn't for example in greece or in of any balkan country really a kind of um elite sophisticated cultural register that is internationally recognized right the way that all the countries that had empires even turkey they have that register they they can appeal to the elite version of their culture moreover and this is a very important thing in the crucial periods of early modernity there were no sort of greek speaking whether they're roman or greek you know in their in their identities i'm setting that aside for now there're no elite greek speaking aristocracies that endow you know universities cultural centers that create you know, research this and cultural that and whatever, like the whole apparatus of high culture that Western countries have that created, you know, libraries and learning and, you know, all of this happens to a much, much smaller scale in countries that were dominated. And so, you know, think about what an elite Greek-speaking culture would look like from, say, the reign of Manuel Komnenos, when it was a prestige culture that everyone looked up to and admired because of its wealth and its antiquity and sophistication and its learning, and everyone is going there to get Greek texts because only these people have them, and it, and they have an emperor who's like the wonder of the world, and he's a sun king, and he's got this aristocracy, and they're fabulously wealthy, and they're endowing all of these institutions and creating monasteries with hospitals and orphanages and choirs, right? That's all lost. And then you have to rebuild it in like the I think 19th century while fighting all these wars. It's it's not good. Um, so I, is this a discontinuity? I don't know, but this is what you lose um when your imperial culture goes under. Um it's it's almost like the culture is kind of decapitated um and has to rebuild itself from you know more like you know peasant foundations but you know it's just fine it's you know that's where we are and who we are um but where are all of the endowments and the long standing colleges that date back to 16 whatever and the libraries that have like it's so hard to find libraries in Athens that are functional and you know, anyway you know what i'm saying um so yeah that's i think the um what uh i find a kind of very curious what if what if that aristocracy and its wealth had survived to endow cultural institutions and state institutions today that yeah that's a, a brilliant answer that i really mm, that's just really interesting and uh mm, i was speaking to a, a british journalist earlier today who who is a foreign correspondent in turkey and he said something very interesting it was a similar thing of being in Turkey where it is post-imperial, but it's also feels a bit post-colonial because mm. secularism was imposed. And again, it's just such interesting thoughts. Um, yeah. I mean, mm. Turkey has, um, it, it's kind of in a mixed situation when it comes to this. 
Um, but one metric to keep in mind in all of this was something that I just find not useful, but kind of funny to think with is how long has it been since you had a high imperial culture, right? So there are countries like, you know, Britain, even France, even Turkey, where it's still relatively recent, where they're still kind of clinging to the glow of that sort of thing. And then there are countries that had it a while ago, like Spain, where it's really only legible in certain parts of the world. But I know that like Castilians, at least, <laughs> not not the other not the other groups. But there is this kind of like, you know, yeah, we were once masters of the world. And and there is a Spanish culture that is a high imperial culture that's different from the local vernacular one. And um, but it's further back in time, right? So the Komnenian is, which is the last time that Greek speakers had that, is even further back in time. It's eight hundred years ago. It's too long. It just doesn't survive. Yeah, fascinating. The, this is this is why we call you to answer these <laughs> questions. Um, now, this is uh, this is a very uh, topical one because on my last tour. The people who come on my tours tend to be science computer people, not arts people, and they were all all over AI in all their work. They were so, they were excited by what AI could do. So, could AI aid Byzantine studies? Um, this listener says specifically, let's say uh, translating tremendous amounts of different uh, language data, as opposed to a human who would have to sort of master, you know, fourteen languages to be able to uh, study and compare texts so i'm not an expert on ai i try to keep up and understand what the hell this is um and how it works and what it does and i think i have a kind of grasp on it um and let me just say that i'm not that i'm not an expert in it and i'm not the kind of person who would use um what it's about to you know its skills at least insofar as i can guess what they will be in the next five years or so so translations of ancient texts, nah, I don't think that's on the horizon anytime soon. Um, just because, uh, you know, I, I run tests on it to see how it translates um, like you know, modern Greek into English and vice versa. And it's really basic. Um, in fact, oh, no, no. The, so the other day I was playing around on ChatGPT and I asked it if it could... Um, turn a passage of modern English into something that is sort of Shakespearean. And it, I'm not Shakespearean, you know, like early, early 17th century or whatever. And it did so pretty well. And I asked it if it could turn something into ancient Greek. And it totally could not. It was giving me modern Greek and was trying to use some classical forms just to kind of throw me off, but no, it was totally modern Greek. Um, I don't think that AI will anytime soon develop the skills that are necessary to translate medieval texts. Just, just no way. Um, th that is very difficult to do, even for the sometimes for the top philologists and there's so much guesswork involved sometimes, you know, we, I mean, we try not to admit it, but there is. Um, and so I don't think that's a danger. However, when it comes to the modern languages, that's a different issue. So, you know, so you get this dissertation in Serbian and you're like, well, okay, 
you can run that through a translation service that will you know be somewhat accurate just based on what i've done in my own testing for greek and english um uh or or other languages i think i tested one on what was it german or french or something just to see if if it was adequate for those languages and it seemed to be pretty adequate not a hundred percent but yeah you could get the gist of it and and you know if you like some passage was particularly crucial you could go in you know that and at the same time I mean, there is a general drift toward just writing in English, even among uh, scholars whose native language is not English. Um, so in the sense that maybe that um, that AI skill won't be that necessary, will be you know increasingly less necessary as people just produce more scholarship in English. Um, I don't know. Okay. Um, I'm sure that there are a whole bunch of other things that AI can do. For example... Um, generate interesting images for the classroom or short videos. I think that the internet is about to be flooded with videos that are, um, you know, like I, I, you know, we all just read about this one AI service that makes brief videos where you put in a description of, you know, like you can say, well, soldiers standing on the walls of Constantinople looking into the sunset and pondering you know, which enemies are about to come next. And it, you know, produces something right now. Obviously that all depends on what data you, it has access to as a kind of, you know, baseline for the terms that you put in. And um, honestly, I don't know that it would have very good reference points for, uh, you know, Byzantine stuff, but we'll see. So there might be some interesting pedagogical use. There might be some, um, you know, suddenly it will become easier to produce images for, for talks or, or classroom. Um, as for you know, like crunching large amounts of data, I don't know. That would depend on the kind of data that you want to put into it. But I have had discussions with people who tell me that, um, it, you know, once it reaches a certain level of competence, it will be able to help them process their large amounts of data. Fair enough. Um listeners uh, on the last tour used ChatGPT to write a toast to thank our Turkish tour guide, including Justinian and Erdogan and uh, and and things. And it was very amusing, if yeah. if not <laughs> not particularly accurate, but it was it was funny. Yeah, um, it hallucinates sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, this is what I get, uh, not quite in this form, but you know. Some listeners are saying after twelve oh four, I won't be listening to the podcast anymore because they're, they're revealing their affection towards Byzantium and they don't want to hear about it declining. So, uh, do you find periods where Byzantium is struggling geopolitically harder to study than times when they're doing well? Oh, harder in like an emotional sense, or less interesting, or less enjoyable in some way? I guess no, no, not at all. Mm. I find it harder because it, they're more complex. Yeah. Right? Like, there are 30 years of like, Basel II's reign where, like, eh, we don't have much to say. And there probably wasn't, like, something tremendous going on other than the Bulgarian War, which we don't know about. So you just say that and move on. Now, that's easy. Right? It's like writing about the reigns of, like, um, Antoninus Pius, you know, in the second century. Like, there's not much to say there. Mm. Um, so... Those are more difficult periods because they're, they're simply more complex. There's always more going on. Um, there are more people all around. There are more contestants inside. Uh, crises multiply and 
create ripple effects throughout the whole system. And so you've got to keep track of all that. So that's why they're harder. I don't find them emo emotionally harder. Sorry. I, yeah, I, I had misunderstood that question. Yeah. Well, I, I may be interpreting it wrong, uh, but the, the, the sort of part two of the question is, is more scholarship produced on periods where the Romans are, are riding high, are doing well geopolitically? So I don't think that scholarship these days um, sees itself in those terms at all. Right. I don't think that historians are, uh, there might be a few who are sort of self-conscious about, oh, I'm now working on a period of revival, or I'm now working on a period of decline by whatever metric. But um, we tend to avoid those um, characterizations. But more importantly, they're not what's driving research. You, you lead, you're, you're interested in a different kind of question, right? Like olive oil production in this part of the Peloponnese or, uh, you know, marriage, intermarriage strategies in the aristocracy or whatever it is. And, you know, if it happens to be a, a period of, you know, riding high or riding low, that that's kind of incidental. Um, yeah, that scholarship is not oriented around those kinds of um, terms anymore. My my layman's sense from the outside is people are looking for areas that haven't had a recent study done on them because then it's an area they can present something new in. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll say Basel the first, for sure. There hasn't been a book on Basel the first in over a hundred years. Hmm. Um, even his son, the other six. There's some, you know, but it's a lot of it's tetragamy oriented, and that's like that's something that impacted maybe seventeen people. Um, but there's a lot going on during those two reigns. They're relatively untouched. Yeah. Uh, next question. In your books, you argue that understanding of uh, the medieval Roman Empire is hindered by the use of terminology that is not contextual to the Byzantines. Which terms are most harmful or misguided? Uh, so first of all, it is impossible to do scholarship or analysis of any kind without using terminology that is not, well, I, I take contextual to the Byzantines to me, to terms that they used and understood for describing the things that we're also describing. That's just simply not possible uh, because in, in part we're using English and English has its own way of seeing the world and classifying things. Uh, I think terminology here probably means um, names and so in that sense, the terms Byzantium and the Byzantines, probably the Byzantines is the most um, destructive one because it doesn't refer to anything in reality and is used to blur distinctions that are actually made in the texts. Um, which terms? I mean, the Greeks is also a problem, depending on the context always. If you're talking about Greek speakers or whatever, whatever, but... There's a lot of scholarship that is um, like Western-focused post-Fourth Crusade, right? So all the little colonial regimes here and there, all the lordships of the Morea and the islands and whatever, whatever. And, and scholars who write on those tend to be Western medieval historians or their, their training or background is mostly in that area. And those refer to the Greeks um, as the subjects of these Latin lords, which is straight out adopting a colonial perspective, you know? Uh, and this is a term that was often used as a slur in Western sources, not always, but sometimes. Uh, you know, think of think of your equivalent slur for any other Western colony in recent times, and you're like, would you use that? No, you wouldn't use that. Um, 
because they're just following Western sources. So don't follow Western sources uncritically when you're using these terms. Why are you using that term? But anyway, um, I don't know about harmful or misguided. They're just, they look weird to me now. Um, I know what they mean. I know what they're getting at. Uh, but there has to be some acknowledgement that you're misrepresenting the culture you're talking about. We, we talked about feudal earlier. I don't know if they mean sort of technical terms like that that just aren't particularly relevant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on the context in which it's used. If you're talking about the principality of the Morea, then, yeah, it's it's pretty accurate. But empire is another such term. Mm. There's no term for empire in the Byzantine Greek vocabulary. And like, it's like we've collectively not, we've collectively decided not to de define the term how we use it. So what does that mean? Like, what's an empire? Um, I, I've obviously I've used this term not only in print but in this very conversation. Uh, but it is a term that I think requires a lot more scrutiny. A recent episode of your podcast, you were speaking to someone about this about the. What does the word emperor mean? Did they use it? What did they mean by it? What, uh, I don't know. I, I listened to your episodes out of order, so I may, <laughs> it may not be recent to you. But um, I have that discussion on a fairly regular basis with yeah. people. Yeah, but yeah, what does Vasilevs mean to the Romans as opposed to what we, we continue it on from our understanding of Augustus and just keep applying it for a thousand years without... Uh, thinking through right. whether that had changed there is no study to tell us what this term means which is kind of fascinating yeah uh what are some of the biggest open questions in the field of Byzantine studies in your opinion so i will choose to not answer this <laughs> in part because um i have if if i if i see a big unanswered question i usually um, write about it. Um, but I don't want, um, in a sense, I don't want to prejudice the field here. I want people to tell me what open questions they see and write about them. So I'm willing to listen. What I think are the big open questions are the things that I write books about. Uh, but I have limited vision, um, and I don't want that to... Anyway, I, I, I wouldn't ever want to sort of give advice in this way about what what questions people should work on because um, I want to um, you know it, there's a problem there of um, you know confirmation bias and all kinds of things. I want others to tell me open questions that I'm not seeing. Very good. Um, what are the topics which lead to the most heated discussions amongst Byzantinists? You know, I'm not sure anymore. Um, I, I, if you asked me 25 years ago, I could tell you it was things like the theme system. Um, right. But you, which is, if you think about it, it's kind of an unlikely topic to generate such heated discussion, though it did. And, you know, it's unlikely. I mean, it's at the center of a lot of the nexus of political and economic history and military. Um, Right now, we seem to be having a discussion about what, whether to change the name of the field, whether to change how we refer to our subjects, whether Byzantium is an appropriate term. I don't really get the sense that it's a heated discussion, though. 
it is on an ongoing one and there are a lot of people contributing to it and um, almost on a weekly basis, I see someone has either written something about it or there's some Zoom talk about it. Um, so I think that is a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a discussion that's created. It's an animated discussion, but I don't know that it's sort of heated. You know, also the the field is much more friendly. <sighs> much much more hospitable uh, and friendly than it used to be when I when I was a graduate student I was I was very fortunate and I had you know a saintly um, advisors and teachers I never had any of these problems but there were some really monstrous people um, with powerful positions in the field who did use their positions to, to sort of harm and belittle others um, really really difficult people um, and it was a generation, you know, where, where that, that kind of behavior was even sometimes expected of a big shot professor among some, you know, in some some circles. Um, and I'm I'm so glad that that's over. Like you don't necessarily. It was so common to have big names get up and eviscerate grad students after their talks at conferences. Um, and anyway. Um, yeah, that doesn't really happen anymore, for which I'm very, very thankful. And that it, having people like that around tends to create heated discussions, even if otherwise wouldn't people wouldn't be inclined to really fight over this. Um, anyway, I'll say that by way of context. And yeah, um, just from my again anecdotal um, uh, knowledge of of the whole subject. The only time I've seen scholars literally say black black is white as in two opposite things was the revolt of Thomas the Slav because wow. there is this different yeah. account given by the emperor versus the historians and I and one historian took the line of the uh, what Michael the 3rd says happened as having yeah. happened and all the others I saw were saying no that's not what happened. So that's the only sure. occasion I can think of where there was a factual dispute about reality, as in a whole sequence of events. Um, yeah, but that's um, a very particular question mm. um, on which, I mean, okay, so scholars disagree all the time about this or that. I can give you endless <laughs> uh, examples of that sort of thing. Um, you know, what was the agricultural productivity of large estates in Egypt in the sixth century? Like things like this. There, there are serious disagreements, and um, you have to take them seriously. Um, and uh, in a certain sense, a lot rides on them. Uh, but there's not that much that rides on the revolt of Thomas the Slav, such that you're not going to have two different schools of interpreting the culture mm. based on that. But like the old theme system. Um, a debate was very much about like how does this culture how does this political culture work like on a kind of fundamental level um and that was uh yeah yeah uh so that is uh a lot of topics covered we're down to uh the last three questions yes um, so what was the most byzantine consumer good the way, say, blue jeans might be seen as an American cultural product. This is easy to answer. It was silk, of which there were many um, varieties and grades, definitely. Um, at some point, it was also icons. 
Um, there was a big trade in sort of orthodox icons that picked up in the later period and continued even after the fall of Constantinople, like even in the West, but certainly in orthodox countries, there was great demand for uh, what were called um, icons in the uh, Greek style. Very good. Uh, the Hippodrome demands to know if Professor Caldellis prefers the blues or the greens. <laughs> so I am so in, so indifferent to sports <laughs> culture that even though I spent 10 years at the University of Michigan and 20 years at Ohio State, I never once went to a football game <laughs> or even set foot inside the stadium, um, even by accident. Um, I, I it, it baffles me that people are interested in such things. <laughs> uh, so I'm with Procopius here, who just simply can't understand why people get so worked up. Uh, about one team or another, they def they seem so interchangeable to me. Um, I, like, look, I, I as as in all things, I want to support the best. Like, I would support the best team, obviously. Like, why would you support any other? And the best team is the one that wins. So you, like, the way I think about it, the way you wait and see who wins, and you were for that person because <laughs> they won. I mean, why would you support a team that's not winning? It's just weird. Anyway, sorry. Very good. And I assume you are up to date with this uh, meme. Yes. Because this came in several times. Uh, yeah. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Well, certainly daily. But the the question then is, how often during the day? <laughs> Many times a day. Now, if we're talking about the Roman Empire, like including the Byzantine Empire, yes, many, many times a day, all day, like in a certain sense, that's kind of... All right. Um, if it's just the ancient Roman Empire, then maybe every few days. But it, it's also my job. Like I'm literally paid to do this. So if, you know, if, if any of the audience are paid um, to think about the Roman Empire, uh, they will be thinking about it a lot. Um, let me just say that your audience might get the impression that I'm um, that part of my job is to is to come onto your podcast. <laughs> it's it's actually not written into my contract with the university, <laughs> though. Um, I did I did try to get them to um, you know recognize. No, I didn't. I didn't. But <laughs> you know, but, podcast service as part of. I don't know, is it scholarship or outreach or whatever? Because I, I actually have to think about these questions, uh, you know, before we record. Um, but maybe maybe university contracts should actually have a clause uh, that they, that they people have to come on to, each, to your podcast <laughs> yeah. or just podcast generally to spread the word. Yeah, well, I you know, I hope we, we've been some help to encouraging people into the fields. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, now, this is the end then of our series um, generated by your new book, uh, the, the History of the New Roman Empire. Um, I wrote down my favorite quotes from the book, and I had about six or seven, and then I lost them, which has really, really irritated me. Oh, no. Like the um, file? You lost the file? That yeah, because you... I was going to embarrass you by reading out all these quotes. And Oh, so... no. And I, well, so good. I'm, I'm glad you lost it then. Yeah, I'm quite, <laughs> quite irritated. the the two I the two I kept, uh, just out of context. There's just so many quotes in the book that I really enjoyed. 
Um, but I just like this one uh, to, to return to Theodora. Um, because we often think of Theodora, as you kind of were saying earlier, as this sexy, you know, poisoning queen. It, it, that's how you, people sort of conceive of her in a in a, when they think about dramatizing her life, she's rising to the top. And and mm. you wrote, um, you know, Procopius later wrote an overblown account of her earlier sexual exploits, casting her, a victim of child abuse and sex trafficking, as a predator, um, which mm. I just thought was a, a really great line. And I had several more lines like that, which, so I'm encouraging people to read the book. And, and... Yes, well, that is the result of, long study of this text and the people in it, uh, you know, the secret history. And I try to see things from the perspective of every character that I wrote about. And, you know, Theodore is no exception. And I wondered at one point, as years ago, why was she so hostile to like this, you know, Constantinopolitan aristocracy once she became empress and did such nasty things to them? And I'm like, well, duh. Mm -hmm. Like, She'd been victimized by them for years, probably. Like, the, no, there's no wonder she was so, 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 you know, vicious about it. Um, so, you know, that kind of makes sense. Mm, absolutely. Um, this one I read uh, cheekily before the book was published to my listeners who were standing on the Theodosian walls at the time, and they mm. cheered. Uh, which was obviously this was just after the walls had been built and you said medieval cities would fall into three categories as in from now on unwalled walled and constantinople yes. and then they cheered so that that's uh that's what the listeners wanted to hear yes well standing on the walls is the ideal place to to think of that <laughs> yes but there i had five i'm really irritated but i had like four or five others that i really loved um all of which to say thank you so much for writing this book um if this book had existed 10 years ago the podcast would have been finished by now um <laughs> and i just really enjoyed it and i think uh, listeners will too and well and... maybe i will uh, it will help you know sort of grease the slide to to the end um <laughs> and uh, make yes. it a little bit easier but uh it was it was tremendous fun to write it um and i i liked putting in little comments like that just to keep the um reader um, you know, both entertained and yeah, a little bit on their toes sometimes. Um, and it's uh, it's been great fun to talk uh, talk about it with you in in, in the series that we recorded. Well, uh, so, so if I can, yeah, if I can be of well, let's let this one settle for a while. Yeah. But if I can be of use <laughs> in in the future, just you can call on. I'm sure we will talk again. But um, mm -hmm. for now, thank you so much for your incredible generosity. You're very welcome. Robin. Take care and good luck. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 